Thank you for listening to one out of four experts. I'm Brutey the Dragon. Remember, these humans are not real experts. Enjoy the show. Welcome to One Out of Four Experts, where each week my co-hosts and I endeavor to bring you topics of interest, topics and subjects only one week before we knew basically nothing about. Each segment, one of the four of us will be your expert and the rest will destroy all humans. I'm Chris. I'm Josh. I'm Caitlin. I am Joel. You guys look a little different. Brother Chris. Yeah, just Chris and Father Joel. Joel. When do we eat these humans? <laughs> it's us, you guys. It's uh, what we're doing. Oh, you guys were doing the voices, and it made you look different. Yeah, for some yeah. Reason. with Cybermen for a minute. Cybermen. That's what Joel calls robots. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking of uh, the name that uh, Joel calls robots um who's going first this week <laughs> that doesn't well welcome to the show y'all and who is going first this week <laughs> you didn't like what i joel did so you re- just decided yeah joel no. rejects We're your intro starting over <laughs> chris no <laughs> um it is you though right joel you're yeah, going yeah, first yeah. it is yeah. you right mm-hmm. okay. i mean well who keeps track of the points I do, and yes. it's you. Okay. And that's correct. Okay. Good. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, then, let me yeah, get my, let's dive right yeah. into this. All right, guys. I can't wait. We are going to talk about night lunch and the history of the American diner. That's oh. what I brought this week. Oh. Don't do that joke. <laughs> night lunch? Yeah, it's called it's something called night lunch. and Dinner? It's great. <laughs> um, so... This is uh, this is an article that I found. I found one article on Atlas Obscura, and so it's it's a it's an Atlas Obscura joint. But from there, I kind of went into the rabbit hole, like we tend to do, and um, I figured out that night lunch is rad. Is it's it, just is a it cool like- thi- a name for a thing, and it, and this is like it predates fourth meal because Taco Bell's dumb. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, I want to become a night lunchman, right? So. <laughs> so- Besides being like a fun alt band uh, from Seattle, so shout out to Night Lunch in Seattle. Um, and there's also a really gritty CBGB's documentary called Night Lunch, which is great by uh, Ivan Carl and Amos Poe. Those two guys made it. Made they made a couple of CBGB's documentaries, but they have one called Night Lunch, and it actually it makes a little bit of sense because in the city, like Night Lunch was a big deal for a long time. Um, so so lunch- it's just you just eat lunch food at night. And yeah. Yep, one hundred percent. It's okay. it's for people who work at night, right? You get oh, you get right. folks that who work sense. overnight. Yeah, well, and when pizza's on a bagel, you can eat <laughs> you can pizza, pizza any time. Yeah, that's what I. So heard. maybe it's the same like you know principle here. So yeah, let me let me get through. I got a lot of stuff. Here we go. Night lunch was a glorious late night meal. It was enjoyed especially in Boston, soon to follow in cities and uh, busy sleepless towns across the country. What year are we talking again? Sorry. This is in the 1870s. A guy 1870s. named Walter oh. Scott, maybe a great ancestor of the now famous businessman Michael Scott. Uh, he started selling late night eats like sandwiches and coffee out of a basket in uh, providence rhode island and then in 1872 he sets up a wagon outside a newspaper office and the first late night lunch wagon was born and uh what what kind of food i just said sandwiches and coffee and stuff 
He put, sounds like he he should be um, knighted so that he's his name is Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> like that sounds appropriate. Great, but uh, but what maybe. kind of sandwiches though? I don't know, dude. It wasn't specified. Butter and a whole bunch, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so some dude uh, that was the cousin of some other dude that was copying Walter Scott decides to start stealing Scott's genius idea and makes the first lunch wagon that customers can actually see. Uh, it all started right near here in beautiful Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester. I've heard it described as beautiful before. Sure. Um, sometimes. It was so, there's a little bit of sarcasm in there. But um, Walter's original wagon was nothing more than a pimped out freight wagon. In Worcester, two businessmen received patents and started factory producing lunch wagons and shipped them all over the country. Um, these two guys are Charles H. Palmer and Thomas H. Buckley, and they somehow both ended up with H. middle names, and uh, that's the, the two totally unrelated <laughs> that's dudes. That's a whole other segment. What are the odds? So uh, they created these really fancy lunch wagons, and uh, they started um, making them crazy fancy, like per perhaps ironically, I don't know, but they're like... They wanted to grab people's attention. Um, so Thomas Buckley's were particularly, uh, particularly, yearly, particularly. This is going to be word. fun. This word. is going to be fun. Um, they were extravagant and uh, they were called perfect little palaces oh. um, with giant, elegant murals and architecture. And uh, it became normal to make these little wagons just crazy elegant eye-catching um and I, I think the best way to describe it would be kind of like a circus or a carnival wagon like that really wild fonts and like fun murals the name um, perfect little pal palace yeah that is it's just like i feel like if i was around back then i saw those and i'd be like Ugh. so these guys are shipping these things Come around on. the country per perfect little palaces that's what i call that's that's what i call my little it's like a porcelain yeah my my, my little porcelain doll <laughs> so yeah, just imagine like you know like lots of palaces. of you know elegant uh what do they call that stuff like molding and stuff yeah to make it look real fancy like a like a little palace uh and in new york the inquirer described the popular wagon style as having elegant carvings skilled paintwork and amenities such as sinks for washing dishes Ooh, that is fancy. Yeah, really oh, hope so that they wait. did that. So this is a primitive <laughs> version of a food, a food truck. truck. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Whoa! So, do Josh and I get... We can share the point. Yeah, I, we I don't want to be greedy. I think I'd give you a point for that. Sure. E with that, we share. We'll split it. Should we split one? I'll split a point yeah, with you. Yeah, well, I'll split a point. All right, take a half point. I, I could split a point. So I'm not hungry enough for a whole point, but I'll take half a point. You know what? Right, I always I got... eat more points. I'll take two-thirds of that point. <laughs> the So the average size was about 8 feet by 14 feet, uh, which is, you know, that's pretty small. These are smaller than your average diner for sure, and... And considering it, they're a little bit different than food trucks because you can still get inside them. Like people would sit at the counter inside of these wagons. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, night lunch was a huge hit and brought food to all walks of life. Uh, excuse me, nightlife. Um, oh. Showgirls, tuxedo dudes, workers, businessmen, serial killers, hat, anyone out hat working guys. late. <laughs> hat, <laughs> hat, hat men. You're just going to say serial killers and I mean, just who keep going. I mean, so yeah. although oh, yeah, the wagons the were uh, extravagant and eye-catching the food was always simple and hearty most didn't even really have a grill and and then the menus were just like super simple sandwiches coffee and maybe pre-made pies 
Yeah. Uh, but they eventually started to include grills and like some of them started to get bigger. And in the early 1900s, these beautiful wagons started to lose their shine a little bit because they're, you know, living that rough nightlife. And uh, these things are hard to upkeep because they're gorgeous when they first come off the line and then you, they start going to work, you know. And then uh, the business owners, they it's a real cheap business, right? Like the margins are real tight as any food industry. And then they start having a really hard time maintaining these things. It costs way too much to keep them looking like they do. And they take a lot of punishment. And then rather than maintain them, they just start deciding that like, okay, we're just going to set up like stationary businesses. So these things become diners. Stationary wagons. Uh Diners. No, diners. <laughs> They're diners. I've heard of those. So lunch wagons become uh, more and more rundown, crappy places to eat. And then cars start zipping around and people are like, get these fucking wagons out of the way. <laughs> so um, the restaurants hate them just like food trucks today. Um, they're lobbied against. And in 1909, uh, they, they start to become banned from the streets of cities. And it's kind of sad. And people get a little bummed out. Actually, uh, Henry Ford ironically huh. uh purchases a night wagon to like a night lunch wagon and keeps it alive in one of his hometowns because he loves the aesthetic um so early diners still had uh small wheels and could technically move if they really wanted to and in 1913 jerry mahoney was the first to establish a truly non-mobile diner and uh he owned multiple companies across northeast and shipped diners all over the country and by 1950 he owned six thousand diners it wasn't until the 19 1930s where we start to see the classic diner that we know today streamlined train cars and they looked all chromed out with the neon light establishments i guess They'd, yeah i never i never thought about why they why they looked that way so it, during the 30s they start to do that but it really doesn't they don't get super chromed out in futury until after world war ii um they did great through the depression because the menu items were really cheap and the yeah. buildings were like super low maintenance and I, it's it's open like crazy hours right so exactly. maybe for people They're who have like factory jobs or like strictly 24 hour places joints. yeah that i don't know for whatever life was like back then maybe people you can you can go there after work no matter what your job is yeah they're great so local diners are a great way to experience uh, cities and towns local flavor both foods and people and uh, don't taste people that's weird <laughs> fun fact though new jersey is known as the diner capital of the world with Hell over yeah. 600 yeah. diners and uh, another another fun fact is that greek immigrants rule the nyc diner world owning yep. 500 diners in the city and they are just a huge part of american culture and i love the aesthetic and all the diner tropes um whenever i think about diners i can't help but think about shows like twin peaks and the movie pulp fiction oh man like, and mm -hmm. growing up in new jersey i went to so many diners oh, yeah. yeah so I've, many i've been diners. to like so 500 of those 600 so and diners yeah the greeks own a lot of them. Mm -hmm. yeah and there's that classic um like diner to go coffee cup that that greek one like that's that's oh yeah, like, the, that's like the a New York pop one, culture yeah. icon. The yeah. little deli coffee cup. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, but they're just like, story-wise, they're such an awesome setting to like have, you can literally put any character in a diner and it just works. So like, <laughs> they're such a good story element because you can just like have a character show up there that doesn't make any sense and all of a sudden it just works because you're in a diner at night and it, it could be anything. Um, it does come up a lot. It's where you have a lot of meetings. Or like two people are sitting back yep. to back and they're talking about sensitive information mm -hmm. and they're and they know the waitress there. Her name's Donna. 
she she always got your she's always got your favorite yeah. slice of pie. She doesn't smell go good, you. but and she's a little on the on the larger side. But you love her. Not that you shouldn't love people. Oh my God, Chris! <laughs> I realized <laughs> as I said, I realized as I said that that sounded. There's a really great um, scene in the uh, Umbrella Academy. Um, really cool fight scene that takes place at a diner. Just a you know. Wasn't still... the, isn't the Umbrella Academy that Gerard Way joint? Yes. So yep. it, it came, there is it a came really around cool to My Chemical Romance. We brought up New Jersey, and now we're talking about My Chemical Romance. It only took like two and a half minutes. Yeah, man. <laughs> so I just want to say, anything goes at night lunch, just like just like real night stuff. No Remember? rules at night. Thank you. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> never know no rules who you at might night be lunch. sitting next to at the night lunch counter. No, you never know so, who you might be sitting next to. Oh. <laughs> Jesus. So what do you guys think is like lunch food because to me lunch is kind of a lie like everything that you have for lunch is like either breakfast food or dinner food already i think of sandwiches correct and sandwich wraps. and soup and salad yeah, yeah lighter i think of those pretty much anything panera sells is lunch yeah. i guess yeah like a panini but, yeah. but i've also had one of those for dinner before hmm. sure yeah you can eat. You could eat a dinner sandwich. I think a lot of European countries like to do sandwiches for dinner. That's a big. Yeah, thing. I think it also is different in every culture what they think of as lunch foods. You know. Yeah. What's like? I can't think of like a truly lunch food. Peanut Just, butter jelly sandwich. Yeah, or like a deli uh, no. sandwich wrapped in cheap tin foil, and the jelly is soaking through the bread. And it came out of the freezer because you made it last night because you didn't want to make it in the morning because then you'd have to wake up a little earlier. And it just, it sucks. You know what I mean? Uh, okay, okay, Joel, <laughs> give Josh a point, yeah. I guess. Okay. I think we have no other choice <laughs> what? Josh a point. So, Joel, what were you talking about again? No, well, I just, diners are fucking great. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> bottomless coffee, way too much portions. The menus have way too many items on them. The kitchens can't reasonably prepare any of that shit, yeah. but they do it anyway. And they kill it all the time. It's always good. It's so always good. good. I you, love you diners. Like, yeah, the diners just can't fuck up a Get breakfast. breakfast you know? Yeah. Fucking 2 a.m. Hell it's great. Oh, yeah. So dog. Yeah, and there wouldn't be Flavor Town without diners. Uh, oh, now I, now I kind of wish that maybe there weren't diners. <laughs> just, <laughs> just dives and drive-ins. Well, mm. huh? You don't want any of those to exist, do you? You gotta have, you gotta have three. What would be the third thing if not diners? Dungeons. Dungeons, di- <laughs> drives, and du- wait. <laughs> Dungeons, dives, and drive-ins. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not the meme, though. I've Good try. <laughs> you can't cut the diners out of the diners, drive-ins, and dives. Otherwise, yeah, you got to have the triple D, man. Does the order matter? Nope. Actually, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Does it go to? One of each in each episode. Does it go, uh, we've done the diner, time to go to the drive-in. <laughs> no, but that's it's always great. it's like always Burger Actually, King. I have a valid point. Does he ever go to a drive-in? Uh yeah. Well, what is there nowadays? Just fucking A and W. Sonic. There's oh, lots yeah. of them. Well, yeah. Can can you go to a place where, where someone? Can, it has to be a local thing. It has is to be there... like a. Oh, I, I was thinking drive-throughs. He can't do a chain. <laughs> can you imagine yeah. diners drive-throughs and dives, that and like in between the diner and the dive, he's just like, "All right, now I'm on my way to this dive bar. Yeah, I'm gonna take uh, <laughs> two Big Macs. Make that it make it three show. Big Macs, and it, yeah, it's always the same. Like it's it, like McDonald's or. 
is there somewhere I could just get someone to bring me my food, uh, but the person's on roller skates? Yeah, that is How come Sonic. that went out of style? No, that like, still exists. That's yeah, they still Sonic. do that sometimes. Do something. Can I go to an Orange Julius if I'm not in a mall? <laughs> oh, wow. Right? Um, wow. We'll be right back. All right, we're coming back. Uh, well, we are back. Why am I speaking in future tense like that? <laughs> we're coming. We back are going to be now. coming back right now. So we're back, and it's it's Caitlin specifically is back. Caitlin, hi. Has it? Uh, hey. what what do you got? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Let's what do it. What topic and or subject are you sharing? Yep, I brought a topic and a subject together they both qualify yeah it's pretty interesting yeah all right so i'm just gonna start talking about it okay all right uh so all right world war one just ended and you're now an ex-soldier from australia okay you don't know what you're doing you got mad ptsd you're just trying to you're just trying to make sense of life now that you've been in the trenches and seen the worst of humanity so australia says Australia says, no worries. Come on back to the land down under. Oh, I reckon we got some land for you under the silver light of Mother Onion. All we ask is, crack open a coldie and plant some wheat for us. Don't be a drongo, mate. And so you (laughs) say... That was fucking crazy good. And so you say... We got a new voice alert. We got a new voice alert. So Australia says that to you. And you say, oh, defo, that's fair dinkum, mate. Sounds gnarly. So Holy shit. <laughs> you were worried you didn't practice this enough? And so, under the promise of government subsidies for farming wheat crops, you start farming wheat crops. Problem is, reverberations from the Great Depression are spreading throughout the world. The big D. Yep, yeah. the big D. Well, back again, you guys. With vengeance. Um, and the Australian government has failed to deliver on those subsidies that they promised. So by 1932, you and your farmer buddies are at your wits end and you're preparing to harvest the season's crops while simultaneously threatening to not deliver the wheat. Suddenly, you look out over the vast amount of cleared land and additional water supply to support the farming initiative and you notice a faint line of something moving toward you from the horizon. As it gets closer, it appears to be a stampede. So you turn to your neighbor, and at the top of your lungs, you shout, Hey, Bruce! It's it's emus, mate! A metric fuckton! Run! Okay? So, are you talking about emus? So this is known as the Great Emu War. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, emu so like i said in the story australia promised land and uh you know seed crops to these soldiers after world war one that didn't know what they were doing and so they get these big amounts of land and they start farming but then the great depression happens they've got but they've got a, a lot of water because they intended to irrigate all of their crops. So they've got a lot of land, a lot of water, and emu regularly migrate after their breeding season, heading to the coast from the inland regions. So all that cleared cultivated land and water for farming looked mighty nice to those 20,000 emus migrating. That's a lot. So they didn't like take over emu like territory or whatever. No, no, they they just kind of set up camp. They didn't think about how emu migrate and this might be... Gotcha. uh, Enticing. Yes. 
to the Emu migraine. Emu. They Can just I, didn't think about that. Sorry, before you go any further, I just want to thank you for uh, re-explaining what you said. Because when you said it in your Australian accent, I was totally lost. I had no idea what was happening. Because <laughs> I was just speechless at that, what was happening. I thought that might have happened. Yeah, yeah so I, I thank you for uh, going over it one more time. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I got you. So these were, these were mostly in the areas of Chandler and Walgulan, which are rural localities in Western Australia. So this immediately caused problems because the emu started consuming and spoiling uh, uh, vast amounts of crops, as well as leaving large gaps in fences where smaller vermin like rabbits could enter and cause further problems. Okay. So they're causing so many problems. All right. Yeah. Here we go. So ex-soldier farmers went to meet with the Australian Minister of Defense, Sir George Pierce. So when you're an ex-World War One soldier and you're facing a new enemy, <laughs> oh my what God. do you think you ask the Minister of Defense to provide you with? Okay, machine guns. Okay, yeah. that's what you're going to go with because we got to mow these emus down. Yeah, yep. they knew how effective they were from World War One. They were still like they still had just a big B for machine guns <laughs> left over from World War One. They just can't get enough, and they're like, "Let's." This is the solution. So the, the big B, the big B for the big during the big D. We're we're working great. on uh, we're working through the our alphabet <laughs> to get yeah. rid of the big E <laughs> to get rid of the big E exactly yeah. the emus are going to yeah. be the big E they're never going to come back up again huh so the prime minister agreed to provide them with machine guns with conditions so the guns are to only to be used by military personnel and troop transport was to be financed by the Western Australian government and farmers would provide food accommodation and payment for ammunition okay so he's like you have to kind of do all the work but like yeah here's some machine guns and you can do that okay <laughs> so he also thought it would be a good idea that they would the birds would make good target practice so it's a win-win you know i guess yeah. it's a way to keep them keep them on top of their keep game your military you know, personnel in between yeah. in between wars <laughs> i wouldn't have guessed um, that so people also argue that it was a way to distract the farmers as a way to stave off the secession movement that was brewing at the time. Just like, just let them bust a cap in some emus. It'll keep them busy. They won't think about how things are going to fall apart soon. How well, big the D is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the war. Military involvement was due to begin in October of 1932. Okay. So Prime Minister Sir George Pierce puts in command Major GPW Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. And that's his name. So that's what I'll be referring to him as every single time. The whole thing? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to call him Meredith. So <laughs> under him, Meredith appoints Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J. O'Halloran, and they get two Lewis guns, which I don't know if you guys have seen those, but they're pretty batshit insane. Um, they're just giant, crazy giant machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Mm. So the operation is delayed, however, by a long period of rainfall that caused the emus to scatter over an even wider area. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, Divide and conquer. Yep. Finally, on November 2nd, the rain lets up and troops are deployed with orders to assist the farmers and according to newspaper accounts collect 100 emu skins so their feathers could be used to make hats for light horsemen good only just only 100 though 
Yeah. If they're going to be <laughs> no, killing I think, thousands of them? Well, I think they want like every man to do his part and collect a hundred emu 100. skins for the light horsemen. <laughs> oh, of oh, like a hundred emu skins. Like a hundred yeah. emu skins each. <laughs> yeah, dude. I think, yeah. Oh, it's like a, it's like okay. a side quest. It was a call to action. Yeah. Sure. So You don't um, have to do it to like win the game, but... <laughs> yeah. You won't get a hundred percent. You need to right. do it. It's early game grind, you know? You gotta yeah. <laughs> collect those emu scalps. So 50 emus had been sighted in Campion, so they head there, and from there, it seems like the emus were able to tactically organize and split into small groups that were difficult to target, so they only kill a handful of them. <laughs> so because they organized. Yep, mm-hmm, yep, so they were way more organized than the Australian <laughs> government. Um, next, on November 4th, Meredith establishes an ambush near a local dam where more than 1,000 emus were supposed to be headed. Uh, this time, they waited until the birds were in close enough proximity before opening fire, except the Lewis gun jammed after only 12 birds were shot. Oh. <laughs> 12 birds? So in the following days, Meredith moves further south, but by this time... And this is like only over a few days, okay? <laughs> Army observers noted that, quote, each pack seems to have its own leader now. A big black plumed bird, which stands fully six feet high what? and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. Yeah, they're angry because wow. you killed a few <laughs> of them. This is after angry a birds. few days they've yeah. done this, but they've organized with leaders of each little faction. So they fucking have to withdraw because they can't kill birds with machine guns. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. It goes to show, I mean, evolutionarily, I think emus probably got a got a leg up on us. Actually, weren't so, they like dinosaurs first? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, they're they've, very primitive they've creatures. Been around they're for still long, much yeah. long before us. They're like raptors. Yeah, they're just dinosaurs girl. just walking around still. <laughs> We're just guests in the emus' house, <laughs> yeah. which is Earth. Did they, is this where they got the dude from Jurassic Park? The guy who has to hunt the raptors, the raptor hunter guy. Is this like part of that? I feel like that's a bit, and we didn't even know about it. That was his backstory. Yeah. Was he was from Australia. <laughs> he was the emu hunter. <laughs> So anyway, I tried to summarize the embarrassing results of the first attempt, but Meredith himself does a pretty good job of it. And he is quoted saying, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. (laughs) (laughs) You sure your army was just terrible? I feel like that's what it was. Maybe they just put... They put so many bullets into these birds and they just kept on trucking. That's what I'm trying to, that's what we're (laughs) trying to say. Just pisses them off. Did they miss a lot or did they like, are the birds just like absorbing ammo? I think it's a lot of both. (laughs) (laughs) So, wow. So, the emus obviously continue to attack the farmers' crops after this. And James Mitchell, the premier, who that's the head of the executive branch of government in the Australian state of Western Australia. Um, he wanted to resume the operation and basically a lie from the base commander said that 300 emus had been killed in the first attempt, which we just, we know that's not true. So they lied to try to entice them to get 
more resources for a second wave. Why would you exaggerate the numbers in the in that direction then? To give them hope, like to make the, it seem worth the government's while, oh, okay. you know? Give them hope against the evil. Yes! I, feel like, I feel like you'd come like whining about the fact that like, we only killed like 12 of these motherfuckers. <laughs> we need a lot more weapons and people. I don't know. Oh, no, they, they've they, killed a hundred of us. Yeah, we're all dying. <laughs> they don't even have guns or weapons. Well, I don't think the humans are dying. No, I know. No, the, the, emus, the emus had shrunken human heads on oh, sticks yeah, outside sticks, of their camps. And that just put the, the fear of God into The Sansas. Them. Yeah. All those trapped souls. So whatever, the, <laughs> the premier is optimistic about those numbers and the minister of defense approves a, uh, that the military efforts resume. So he approves that. So this time on November 13th, 1932, they have a little success in the first several days. The success being around 40 emus killed. Uh, by December, soldiers were killing about 100 emus per week. Mm. And they feel pretty good about wounding and killing about 2,500 birds. Okay. It's a Remember, lot of birds. Th- so it is, but not compared. What was the, what was the magazine capacity well, oh, on that on that machine gun? I again? don't know, <laughs> but originally it was estimated that twenty over twenty thousand were spotted in the area, and this is before they probably bred and had babies. Some guy was like, "Oh, one, two, three, four, twenty thousand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, despite military intervention, farmers needed military assistance again in 1934, 1943, and 1948, only to be turned down by the government. Because they were like, we were okay with this at first, but we just can't throw any more money on a prehistoric bird war. <laughs> like, <laughs> instead, uh, they issued bounties on emus, and so an emu bounty system proved quite lucrative for farmers. 57,034 bounties were claimed over a six-month period in 1934. Wow. That's Damn. So that's how many emus, like now the 2500 so but like there were still emus everywhere just (laughs) all over the place so by december 1934 word of the great emu war spread reaching the uk and they sort of became a laughing stock Um, they like sent reinforcements reinforcements. some, some conservationists in the uk protested the cull like protested the bounty because it was like animal rights yeah um and throughout 1930 onward, exclusion barrier fencing uh, became a popular way to keep emu out of agricultural areas. So they find a better way to keep them out. And uh, now the emu has had its status as a protected animal reinstated. So basically, to summarize, I just want everyone to know about how Australia went to war with emus and pretty much lost. <laughs> <laughs> and they just... So, yeah, they tried real hard. Yep, very hard. And with they, machine guns. Yeah, and then they gave up, and mm-hmm. now they're, they're like, all right, no more trying to anger these birds. Just, they're, they're under our protection, because mm-hmm. they will kill us. Is Australia even there anymore? <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's emus. only emus. <laughs> no, it's okay. The kangaroos took care of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, how, did this help with, like, the engineering, the development of that machine gun? Do you think it got better because of this? <laughs> yeah. Like, they had to be like, okay, this gun's shit. <laughs> We need, yeah. we got to improve. This was okay in World tech. War One, yeah. but it's not okay against Emu. So we got to, we've really got to reevaluate this. Research um, the next level of military on the tech tree. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, <laughs> Civ 5. Just, it's just an, it's the whole thing's just an, a role playing game. Hmm. Well, thanks, Caitlin. Yeah. No yeah. problem. Anytime. We'll be All right, right back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's the show so far?
I hope you're enjoying it. I'm Brutey the Dragon. You can reach one out of four experts at one out of four experts at gmail.com, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. I think we're going to... We're going to listen to Josh spout some information. Oh, yeah. I'll be spouting. Oh, how terrifying is it going to be this week, Josh? Because I feel like you are leaning hard into it. I accidentally caught Josh, like, watching some really dark documentary oh, no, on YouTube that the other was day. Unrelated. And no, he said, it was no, unrelated. You said it was fun. related. You were like, oh, I just kind of went down a rabbit hole after doing some topic research. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It was a rabbit hole. So it was very, I mean, it wasn't okay. related at all. Or we'll see. It wasn't. It wasn't. So my topic this week is about as close as a society has gotten to an actual real life cyberpunk dystopia. Is it our... Is it America right now? No. Okay. No. Sometimes Cyberpunk it feels dystopia like it. Must be like it's got to be an Asian. So this is something nation, that happened right? in real life, not yes, a form of media. This happened okay. in real life. It's. Is it Japan or China, or neither? Am I close? Is close. it Australia? No. Oh. <laughs> I don't. I have close? no idea. So yeah, I Korea? honestly have no idea. All right, all right. It's. It was known as the Kowloon Walled City. Oh, Kowloon Walled. Yes. Oh yeah, dude. Of course, Joel has heard of this. There's <laughs> a great heard of this. The, the band, dude. The band is killer. There's a band. Can Joel have a point Kowloon Walled City? For knowing yeah, about the band. Yeah, Joel, Joel oh, have a point. Wow. Thanks. I'm not going to be talking about the band at all, though. I'm okay. going to be talking about the place that the name that the band was named after. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kowloon in general is an area just north of Hong Kong Island, and Kowloon Walled City, at least in more recent history, started as a Chinese military fort that gradually transformed into a lawless, ungoverned, oh, super the triads, dense. Right? Yes, yes, Joel gets a point. Well, I don't super know what that dense. is. Though. I'll, I'll get to it. It's not just a gang. Oh well, yeah, um, like but it was mo- this like the mafia kind of. Yeah, it was the super dense and initially really sketchy DIY city. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's insane. But the site itself dates way back. It first appears in history during the Song Dynasty as an outpost to manage the salt trade sometime between the years of like 960 and 1279. And uh kind of just makes me think of like Age of Empires. Yeah. And just getting trading posts. Fucking Suleiman. <laughs> <laughs> But aside from that, the outpost mostly chilled there for like hundreds of years until uh, 1842, when China ceded Hong Kong Island to the British at the end of the First Opium War. How um, many opium wars have there been? I think there were two. Okay. Um, even though the UK controlled the island and some of the surrounding area, China retained control of the outpost in Kowloon, and they wanted to keep it going to monitor the British rule in the area, and they beefed it up by doing what the Chinese do better than any civilization in human history. They built a wall around it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crushing it. Um, and the British got more of Hong Kong as a result of the Convention for the Extension of Hong Kong Territory. Convention for the Extension? Yep, Convention <laughs> for the Extension. An extension convention? Pretty much, yeah. In uh, 1898. And <laughs> this agreement essentially leased the UK, the territory, for an additional 99 years. But the Chinese still got control of that outpost, which now had a population of roughly 700 people. And they were just like mostly elderly people that Ooh. lived in the central building known as the Yamen. 
And it kind of acted as like a retirement home that was converted from the main building within the fort. Well, either way, a year later, the British decided that they were going to take the outpost by force because they thought that it was a threat. So they took it. But there wasn't really any resistance. There weren't really any soldiers there. There was like no one to defend it. So they just took it with no resistance. I know this is like a lot of a lot of exposition yeah, here, but okay. it matters. It gets real gnarly. Uh, the outpost set abandoned until World War II. For a while, Japan controlled Hong Kong, and in 1943, they dismantled the wall around the outpost, um, and they used it as material for constructing the nearby Kai Tak Airport. And that airport's going to come back soon. Huh. So, not long after Japan surrenders and World War II ends, the Chinese Civil War ramps up again. And a ton of people are trying to flee the violence in China, so they end up in Hong Kong. So by 1947, there were over 2,000 people that were just kind of squatting within the perimeter of what used to be that outpost, and it transformed into a shanty town. So there were a just shan- like a, a shandy town. <laughs> no, nope. drinking, drinking coogs all day. That sounds Not delicious, quite. man. <laughs> um. Yeah, so it was just a bunch of refugees, essentially, and people who had to uproot their lives. And the British tried and failed to force everyone out in 1948. And after that, they just took a hands-off approach. They just left it alone. And the Chinese government wasn't watching over it at all, and the British weren't watching it. And it was essentially an autonomous, leaderless squatter camp turned micro city. And it developed and evolved to meet the demands of the people who lived and worked there. It was just totally unplanned, totally unregulated, and built by completely average people. What now, year was this again? This was like nineteen, like end of the nineteen forties, okay. beginning of the nineteen fifties. And you said people work there, so they have their own like economy and everything. So yeah. Now, while I get into the stats of Wait, this place, this makes the me stats. think of this makes me think of um, Diamond City from Fallout. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah this is exactly like that. Okay. Actually, give yourself a point. Oh, give yourself a point. Really? Yeah. Because I was going to ask. I good, wonder if I've good. seen this depicted in in media at you, all. Very. It's very possible. Okay. Yeah. Now, while I get into the specifics of this place and how bonkers it gets, keep in mind that the footprint of the area is 6.4 acres, which is about one one one-hundredth of a square mile. That's a tiny little area. It's the size of a single city block, essentially. Oh, wow. So keep that in mind. Uh, So this settlement at the beginning mostly attracted drug users and gangs, uh, since they could pretty much do drugs and operate their gangs without anyone to tell them not to. Nice. And there were lots of gambling parlors and a lot of brothels and a lot of opium dens. Yeah, (laughs) it was great. So if you wanted to gamble and bang whores and smoke a bunch of opium, you'd head on to the walled city and you'd just cave to your vices. Hell yeah. Yeah. And overall, the city was known for gambling, drugs, prostitutes, Dog meat and dentists. Is this <laughs> okay? This is Las Vegas. This is yeah. Chinese Las so, Vegas. So yeah. So even though it was illegal to eat dogs and cats in Hong Kong, nobody enforced laws within the walled city. Yeah. Anything no rules went. at night or in the walled city. No rules at night, and it was <laughs> pretty much city, always like night in the walled city. <laughs> I, I think we got a T-shirt, guys. No rules at night. No, no rules, rules at night. night on the front, and then or in the walled city. Yeah. <laughs> so there were some restaurants Back. within the walled city. Um, that had a lot of dog meat options. So, like, dog meat stew was really popular. But since lots of the city's inhabitants were people that fled China due to war, a lot of professional 
professionals had to abandon their jobs. So that includes people like doctors and dentists and their licenses mm-hmm. didn't mean anything in Hong Kong. So they opened their own practices within the walled city, providing people much cheaper medical and dental care since they were unlicensed. Um, but they still had all the training and qualifications and experienced of an experience of licensed doctors and dentists. They just didn't have the paperwork. So they provided a very needed service to <laughs> a lot of impoverished people in that immediate area. Yeah. Uh, but in 1959, someone got murdered in the city. It took that long. Yes. That was the um, first murder in that city. I found that hard to believe. Well, I'm that's that's what they say. Uh, and this murder forced the British and Chinese governments to decide once and for all who. So really somebody had important got this. murdered. Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And they determined that the Hong Kong government had to deal with the trial and all that jazz. Uh, And until then, the city was ruled by a series of transnational Chinese gangs known as triads. So, yeah, triads are like a a series of gangs, pretty much. Right. Um, And they're they're pretty much everywhere in the world where there's a big Chinese population. They run deep. So, yeah, the the gangs mostly ran the city. Uh, But from then, the city was policed much more and the gangs gradually gradually lost their power. And at the same time, with no way to expand outward, they had to expand upward. So throughout the 1960s, people built modular structures on top of each other. Just fucking DIY high rises. (laughs) Oh, God. That's cool. And how how high are we talking? Oh, so like 14 stories. Damn. Yeah, so that does make me think of sort of cyberpunk dystopias, yeah. like Ready Player One. Yeah so, <laughs> yeah, so I think I saw some photos of this recently on uh, Midnight Pulp. I'll show you page. guys some pictures. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, I see some wild, yeah. Um, but even though Hong Kong technically ruled the area, building codes weren't enforced, fire codes didn't exist, they didn't use licensed electricians or plumbers or architects. They just they just built. Oh, so it's kind of like Boston. And the city grew. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. Um, and the population exploded through the 1970s due to the fact that you could just roll up, build a room with your stuff, like, and just things you find around you, and just say, "I live here now." And roughly 300 buildings that were built so close to each other that they literally relied on one another to stay upright. They just like sprung out of the ground. <laughs> And, and, they yeah, were, and this is like a city block, so yes, 300 buildings. 300 buildings in the space of a city block. I'm surprised it didn't burn to the ground within oh, like the first year. There was yeah. a big fire, actually. I think it was in like 1949 that burned down a huge chunk of it, and they just rebuilt on top of it so quickly. But the, all of the buildings were completely interconnected, so you could traverse the entire length of the city in any direction without even touching the ground or going outside. Yeah, That's pretty cool. And all of the buildings were constructed around the yeoman in the center. So it looks like there's this big courtyard in the middle of these DIY high rises. And they're just like janky and crooked. (laughs) (laughs) To get the most out of their space, uh, some of the alleyways were only like six feet wide between buildings. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were so narrow that most of the alleyways were permanently dark, especially due to all of the pipes zigzagging oh God, the all the way from the ground oh, wow. to the it's tops of the buildings. Cyberpunk dystopia. There's got to be pipes and vents and way too many of them. Oh, yeah. And people frequently walked around with umbrellas because the pipes were just constantly leaking. <laughs> oh, the city where it always rains. Yeah. So about <laughs> from Blade Runner. <laughs> about the only thing that was enforced was the height restriction. They couldn't build above 14 stories and they totally would have if they were allowed to because of the nearby Kai Tak airport. 
that they dismantled uh, the wall. There's that to airport build. again. Yeah. Back. I was thinking, when's this airport going to yeah. come well, back? Yeah. <laughs> they would literally be in the flight path of landing planes if they built it any higher. So there are all these pictures of planes flying over the city, and it's so crazy how how low the, these so planes weird are. Too, um, it it looks like you could just stand on the roof and just put your hand up and scrape the bottom oh of a God. plane that's coming in. Um, so obviously it was so so fucking loud living there mm-hmm. or working there because planes are coming in all the time, literally on top of you. And uh, officially, about thirty three thousand people lived in the that's city. Crazy crazy yeah and once the gangs and crime were driven out it was mostly just regular people that occupied the city and there were homes and businesses and restaurants and stores and doctors and dentists and factories like anything you would see in a regular city it was just crammed into this really tiny space it's like dinky park and roller coaster tycoon it's just real tiny And this was by far and away the most densely populated place on the planet. So, for reference, New York City has about 27,000 people per square mile, and it's the most densely populated city in the U.S. Kowloon Walled City had a population density of about three and a quarter million people per square mile. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's about 120 times the density of New York City. Like... (laughs) I don't think I can like. Yeah, I'm having a hard time. Yeah. So a room this size would potentially have like two entire families living in it. How big are those families? But like four plus four, people. Yeah, four to that. Oh my god! So it was so 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 densely populated. Since they all yeah, since everyone lived on top of each other, they all sustained their own businesses. Like the people that lived in the city sustained the businesses on the the lower levels and whatnot interesting right so there's enough people to like make an economy happen and these people are technically would you say these people are happy living here yeah a lot of them really were and a lot of them were there by choice and they were really happy with the arrangement it was cheap living um and free living yeah essentially sounds like a relatively anarchist society that it was super stacked on top and they had like a loose government within themselves it was like a of selected group of people or elected group. I don't know. I didn't go too deep into that. Hmm. When you said loose government, I thought maybe they're all just (laughs) sleeping around with each other. (laughs) Not quite. Um, But at the end of the day, people lived in absolute squalor and completely absurd conditions. And the sanitation was of a high concern. Um, That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. Lower levels of the city were riddled with garbage and sewage and were constantly wet, hot, and humid. The rooftop was a popular congregating spot, though, uh, because you could escape the dampness, heat, and like intolerable smell of the innermost parts of the city. But then you just get all the the fuel from the planes. Yeah. So you got that noise and everything. Um, And many people's homes had not a single window since a lot of them were just interior rooms. So in 1984, the joint British-Chinese government decided to evict everybody and demolish the city. And on January 14th, 1987, they made their plans public. They just kind of announced it over the radio. And over the next five years, they vacated the city. The governments offered a total of about $350 million compensation to the 33,000 people they forced out. So that works out to roughly $10,500 per person. Not too, too much for 
having your displaced yeah your yeah and like your home Mm -hmm. and everything you own just kind of stripped away from you yeah um so they demolished the city and they just put a park there in its place and the park also serves as a sort of little monument to the city that used to stand it's almost like they paved paradise and put up a parking lot that's exactly what they did. <laughs> All right, give her a point. You so it's a, a parking lot. Caitlin now? gets a point. A park. A park. A park, a park yeah. king lot. Mm-hmm. Now, Josh, what breed of dog tastes best? <laughs> uh, all right, I didn't want to bring it up, but I did find one thing that kind of went into specifics as to the type of dog that they would typically. Yeah, Shiba Inu. Tell, tell, tell me I really about don't it. want to say what it is. Well, Shiba whisper it into the microphone so Caitlin doesn't have to hear it, but the, the folks at home can hear it. I really don't want to say. Please okay. don't make me say it. I don't want to say it. I already said it. They ate Doge. No, it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> Shiba's. No, okay. Just go for it. Let's do it. It was Chow Puppies. Oh. oh I was, that's not that far off. And I think it was six weeks old. It was either six weeks or six <laughs> months. So young. The veal of dogs. Oh, yeah, I guess. Actually, though, yeah, it was really fucked. It was fucked. <laughs> no. I knew you knew the information, so I had to ask. And I, I did not seek that out. <laughs> no. Yeah, I kind of wish I didn't know that. Well, now everyone knows it. And on that note... Welcome back, welcome back. Chris is back and he's a real cool cat. Chris, what do you you got for us? Hey, thanks. Uh, I want to talk about Fluxus. Fluxus? Say again. Fluxus. Is that Hexus's brother? No. Hexus and Fluxus? No. Fluxus. Uh, is it some sort of futuristic material? No, it, ha- it happened already. Oh, it's, it's done. An, it is an event. It, um, it was, well, do we have any more guesses before I get into Sunset. it? Sunset. No. no. Fluxus. Uh... Nope, I got the nothing. The Fluxus I, capacitor? I, I, nope. No. Oh. It's, not, it's not as futuristic as you're thinking. Okay. Um, so, Fluxus was an international community of artists, composers, poets, and designers in the 60s and 70s huh. who created many experimental art pieces together and separately. Hmm. Um, their whole thing was performance art and the idea that the process of creating art is better or more interesting than the final product. Huh, I wonder if Bread ah. and Puppet came out of this movement. What is it? Do you know what Bread and Puppet is? In no, Vermont? I don't know what that is. They're like a performance art, like a hippie commune performance art thing. Maybe. Sounds so, exactly like what Very Chris politically is motivated, though. Yeah, so there, was, there was a little bit of that involved here. So I'll get into it a little more. Okay. Obviously, it's my topic, so I'm going to get into it a little Please, more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> By all means. So Fluxus contributed many art pieces to many, many different artistic mediums, as well as coining the term intermedia. Which is basically when you take two totally separate types of art and find like the middle ground, then that's a new kind of art. Hmm. So like uh, you go halfway between like painting and poetry, and there's some weird thing in the middle of that, and then you make that. It's it's, it's very postmodern. Yeah, um, there's like one that I it's it's kind of hard to grasp, but there's one one in particular that I found an example of is uh, something called Haiga. It's H-A-I-G-A, which is a Japanese style of painting that incorporates haikus into the paintings. Mm. Oh, cool. Um, so they do a lot of that stuff, and they, they coined the term for that kind of a thing, which, again, is intermedia. 
But uh, Fluxus was a super radical artistic community, or at least it was radical for like the time period. Because was it a global community? You just spit out um, some Japanese art, so. Well, or was it just? Well, that, well that's intermedia. That's like an oh, example gotcha, of intermedia. Gotcha, gotcha. And, um, and radical, like it was like radical, man. Well, that and also like just their views on art yeah. and what could be considered art. <laughs> but they were rad. Was as hell. radical. They were yeah, rad they were as rad as hell. As hell. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, some of them are rad as hell. Not all of them. Where but, um, are they mainly based? Um, there, there wasn't like a one central hub. It's it not where they like were based. It wasn't like Western Mikey's house. Yeah, or... no, yeah, it wasn't at Mikey's house. <laughs> okay. It was like it was like a big group of people that were a part of Fluxus, and they were. All, it was all over the world. Uh, I thought maybe it was like one art house in the UK. No, no, it was nothing like that. <laughs> okay. That would be cool, but it wasn't that. Um, yeah, they basically just wanted to fuck shit up art wise and do a bunch of stuff that today would be considered art, but back in the sixties and seventies wasn't really viewed as such. Uh, Fluxus artists generally shared a feeling of anti-commercialism and anti-art in general. Oh, ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck art. Yeah, so I'll get into it. It is kind of ironic, which I'll get to at the end. Well, Adbusters magazine is kind of like that, right? They're like anti-media media. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yep. Like, they're like, art is stupid. Let's make art <laughs> about it. Let's make art about how bad art is. So, uh, there are a lot of artists that are considered Fluxus artists. The most popular ones I could find that are considered Fluxus are John Cage, who is a com- an avant-garde composer. Yeah. Father um, of Nick Cage? <laughs> I, no I relation. Don't know. No, really. no oh, relation. Really. I think. I mean, or, Johnny Cage. John. No. So John Cage. Uh, what? If you don't know him, uh, he did a lot of prepared piano stuff, which is where you'll like you'll open up a piano and like do things with like put like cards on the strings to make it sound a weird way or like. So the other the yeah. other thing that he's most famous for is uh, a composition called Four Thirty Three. Oh which yeah. Which is a three movement composition written for any number and or arrangement of instruments whatever you have lying around (laughs) Um, and the players are instructed to not play anything at all for four minutes and 33 seconds i've heard this yeah Yeah. um the other uh fluxus artist that i'd i'd heard of that i uh, considered popular was yoko ono who was uh yoko owner You, you you know her yeah um i don't know why i said that like a boss and the Massachusetts person, Yoko Owner. <laughs> Yoko uh, Owner. I've been I hardly like- know her. Shit. Okay. If you didn't already have enough points to win, I think that should that should do it. So I want to read the Fluxus Manifesto real oh quick because there is one. Um, it was written by this guy George Massiunas. He was like the. I'll get into him, but the manifesto. Um, it's got a lot of like cut and pasted definitions from a dictionary in it, uh-huh. just like the uh, definition of the word flux, which I'm going to skip that part. I'm going to get to the handwritten stuff. So uh, purge the world of bourgeois sickness, intellectual in quotes, professional and commercialized culture, purge all caps, the world of dead art, imitation, artificial art, abstract art, illusionistic art, mathematical art. Purge the world of Europanism. And a lot of that's capitalized and it's scribbled out. Then uh, promote a revolutionary flood and tide in art. Promote living art, anti-art. Promote non-art reality to be grasped by all peoples, not only critics, dilettantes, and professionals. 
fuse the cadres. Is that the word? Caters? Yeah, I, I've only really seen it written. Yeah. But I know the word you're talking about. C-A-D-R-E-S. Fuse my cadres. <laughs> uh, uh, what does that even mean? Well, fuse them. There's more to that sentence. Uh, fuse that word of cultural, social, and political revolutionaries into united front and action. And that's their manifesto. Wow. I, I, that's pretty clear. Yeah. I think we all know what they're we talking about. We know what about. they mean. So they're like, they're surrealists for surrealists. Basically, yeah, they hate art, but they want to make art. And they want art to be for the people and not like the critics yeah. and the upper class. They think art should be for everyone, but also it shouldn't be art because art is is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was sort of a movement in all arts during that time, I feel yeah. like, like in literature too. Oh, yeah. People so, yeah, that. it was it was everything. Yeah. So, like, even things that I don't know if I necessarily considered it art, which I guess some of them are. I'm still kind of on the fence about some of them. But, like, people who are part of the Fluxus movement were visual artists, composers, designers, architects, economists, mathematicians. I would want an architect to be a Ballet a dancers. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, wow. Chefs and theologians. So, what, the, the, yeah. Theologians they, could be... Theolo- yeah. They they, be, they let anyone they let anyone be a fluxus. How the fuck? <laughs> they let anyone in. You just gotta believe. Okay. Yeah. So fluxus artists uh, put on what they called performance events, which are basically what we know as performance art now. They included noise, music, visual art, concrete, poetry, and urban planning, to name a few of the things that they did. Again, don't really want them planning out the. Well, that was part of it. And maybe that's who planned out most of Boston. Yeah, it could I be. It was cows that planned really most of Boston. Boston yeah, I think it was, actually. Or horses. <laughs> yeah, horses, for sure. They, horses. Just, they just paved wherever they cows, walked. Cows, horses. Uh, What's the difference? Well, there is no difference. They um, both got four stomachs, both a little venomous. Yeah, they both have <laughs> And I wouldn't want to get kicked by either one. So they're the same. So, I, uh, I've always called cows just, you know. The edible horses. <laughs> they're just <laughs> They're just the milky horse. You, know. you can horse. milk a horse. I got nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? <laughs> um, so uh, the beginning of the Fluxus movement can be traced back to uh, actually John Cage, who I was talking about earlier. He was like the biggest influence on the whole thing. He used to teach experimental music classes and a bunch of people that would go on to become Fluxus artists. Like, and uh, did he also get punched in the nuts? Uh, excuse me. Did he also punch Goro in the nuts? <laughs> what? <laughs> Johnny Cage from Mortal Kombat. Oh, no, I didn't even know who that was. Uh, I'm still thinking about Nick Cage. Probably not. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, a bunch of people that would go on to become Fluxus artists attended his experimental music classes, where I imagine he was basically like Robin Williams from Dead Poet Society. You'd be like, turn to page 69 and rip it out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another major influence on Fluxus was the French-American painter uh, Marcel Duchamp, which is, it's spelt like Ducamp, but it's pronounced Duchamp. Yeah, no, that sounds familiar. Um, You've probably seen some of his his stuff. He did one where it was like the Mona Lisa with a mustache drawn over it. Like that was literally it. It was like it was like a photograph of the Mona Lisa and he drew a mustache on. That was it. Classic. Um, he was pretty well known for these things called ready maids, which are where you take objects that already exist and you he you do like the minimum, like tiniest little alteration to it, and he's like, "This is art now." Like the the George Washington with the the, the crosses through his eyes. Yeah, the or Charlotte like, album cover. <laughs> yeah, well, so it, it was mostly <laughs> like it was mostly like sculptures or like sculptures with air quotes. Um, 
Like there's one called Fountain where it's just a urinal that he wrote R Mutt on. And he's like, that's it. That's art. <laughs> and people loved that shit. Yeah. So th- those two guys were like the two huge influences on, uh, on Fluxus. Uh, the name Fluxus was coined by George Masiunas, who wrote the manifesto. He was like the Fluxus daddy. Um, like the Nick Fury of the Fluxus Avengers. <laughs> yeah. So he started assembling these things called Flux Boxes or Flux Kits, which are basically suitcases filled with art and physical objects from a number of different artists. And that was meant to both represent and display all the artists separately while kind of being its own work of art in itself with all of them put together. A Flux Box sounds like a cartoon making fun of an Xbox. It's like, oh, yeah. I gotta get the, the new Flux Box game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so it was like kind of like, art in itself the case it came in was supposed to be contradictory to framed art on a wall <laughs> what yeah, i know <laughs> um the intention was never to be for any of these it was never intended for these to like end up in a museum mm-hmm. it was supposed to be like here's this box of shit and like i, I watched this video of this artist um Allison Knowles, who was like discussing the kits and she's like they're really quite fascinating there's nothing quite like them and she's in a muse- like they're in museums mm-hmm. now because that's what happened to all this Fluxus stuff where they were like, <laughs> yeah. this is not art. We hate art. All of it's in museums I, now. I feel like there's a lot of art movements like that. Though. Yeah. That's why like, I take all this with such a grain of salt because like the Surrealist movement before that was like the same exact Yeah, and not only, not only that, like this person, Allison Knowles, like she was one of the Fluxus artists and now there are documentaries of her in museums pointing out those things and talking about it like mm-hmm. it's art and she has like this she does this thing where she's like it was, it was it's art like she's like pretending to be a, an art snob like she does yeah. like an art snob yeah thing. and it's like ugh, i don't know the, the no i the think she's thing. making fun of art snobs but yeah. in doing so she's being an she's art being snob. one yeah, yeah exactly so yeah now it's just treated as an artistic movement just like you know you would say like the renaissance mm-hmm. it's just like fluxus like that's another like cubism it's like huh. something like that um so yeah you'll see flux kits and fluxus exhibits in museums all the time now so the jokes on them um <laughs> it didn't matter to the artists what happened to these kits like uh, one of the things that uh, allison knowles was saying was that um different parts of it can like break and they could just be replaced on like a painting or a sculpture where if it gets destroyed, it's gone. Like if, if, if it breaks, like that's just part of it. Mm-hmm. That's just part of the art now. Mm-hmm. Like one of her things, she cut up a bunch of tiny scrolls of writings and canned them like beans. And that was art. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Okay. Yeah. Not people, like any other canned yeah. item, just canned like beans. Well, yeah. Cause yeah, she like kept talking about how they're like beans. Yeah. yeah. These people are fucking monsters. <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of Fluxus artists, uh, they shared wit and childlikeness. But they're so fucking all over the place that pretty much anything can be considered Fluxus. And uh, there was no like group of defining features for Fluxus. Um, one cool thing about it is that it had more female members than any other Western art movement up until that point. Aha, so that's yeah. kind of cool. Oh, is this like where the, uh, what's her name, Maud from Big Lebowski? <laughs> was she a Fluxist? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, maybe. Is that what was going on there? Uh, could have been. I don't know if they say that, but no, I feel no, like I, mean, I feel like that would count. Joel, like, makes, like just a faint memory of a point. Yeah, he's trying. Yeah. I feel like I remember what a point was like. Yeah, right. Perfect. <laughs> so, um, some Fluxus artists like to use shock in their art. So there's one fucking psychopath who displayed a cow's head at the entrance to his exhibit, 
like a dead cow's decapitated what, now, head. Now, was it full regular size? Regular size. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, not shrunken Jeez. at all. Not shrunken. Okay. Yeah, no, full size cow's head. Okay. And he said he wanted to get people in the right head space to view his art. That was not, no pun intended. Oh my sure. God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. um, he called it being high. Mm. When you saw that cow's head, it gets you high and it gets you ready to see yeah, his how art. How do you get high? I mean, you're right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah you just, you just see the milk horse, the milky <laughs> horse head and you just, you're just out Whoa! of this world. And you're ready to listen to the, blast the dead. off. So, uh, yeah, it was super weird. Uh, some kind of cool ideas, but I feel like Fluxus people, uh, based on my research, uh, pretty similar to exact kind of people that they claim to be against in their manifesto. Mm-hmm. Um, George Massiunis, who was the, uh, Fluxus daddy, uh, who kind of t- coined the term and wrote the manifesto, and he was kind of like he was like the Charles Manson of the oh, yeah. the Fluxus oh, family. Um, he kicked a number of people out of Fluxus because they deviated from what he perceived to be the goals of Fluxus, oh, my God. which is super ironic because yeah. the the art movement was based on like nonconformity, yeah. and it <sighs> required conformity within it, according to its founder. Love it. So that's lame. Uh, many people mark the end of Fluxus as uh, George's death. Uh, and of course, his funeral was super weird. Uh, it had a name, which How was weird. Was it? <laughs> well, it had a name, which was Flux Feast and Wake. It like it's a weird religious holiday or something. Uh-huh. Um, they the had the only food there was black, white, and purple. Those are the only colors of any food that was allowed at his funeral. Okay. Um, and they screened videos that he recorded to be played at his funeral um, of just his thoughts on Fluxus as a whole. Just like him, just like sitting and just like talking about. But just and so then you would just watch that and just like dip your black licorice in mayonnaise. Yeah. <laughs> nom 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 nom. Exactly. It's like Scientology for artists. And just so, eat a yeah. raw eggplant. So yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's dumb. Is what it is. It's dumb. But it's um, art though. It's art, but art is but dumb. It's not art. It sounds like they probably made a lot of good art. Art though. is dumb. Is not art. Is yeah. Not, is dumb. So I mean, learn a trade. I love weird art. Become a plumber. There's nothing wrong with weird art. Please go out and learn a trade. We don't need any more art. You know, there's enough. We're we're over it. It's just, you know, just let's all watch the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Yeah. Defund and two and and a half men. Listen to Nickelback. Defund art. No more art. Just defund art. Um, One out of four experts strongly against art. (laughs) Jesus. Um, and uh, we'll be right back. Three, two, one. Hey, Whoa, we're, we're back. back. Um, thanks for listening, guys. This is terrifying. I am just so. We can't do this. So we're gonna do this. We got to stop. We got points, Caitlin. Who got points? <laughs> that was awful. Some points. Right. I yeah, feel like we got some points. We got some points. I don't think I got points at all. I don't think you got. points I think I got either. a memory I've, of a point. Yeah, Joel got two. Plus, uh, just a faint memory of a point. <laughs> um, and Josh got two and a half points. Wow. And I got three and a half points. Wow. Man. You are just. So uh, I put in some work this episode. Yeah. Wait, how many? How many did Chris get again? Oh, Chris got. Uh, oh, let me see. It's hard to keep. It's hard to keep track. Oh, none. None just points. Just none points. Zero. Wow. Zero that sounds points. about right. I was, you know, this week I was just along for the ride, uh, not in a bad way. I was yeah. just, I was just listening and I was, you know, enjoying it. Taking it all in. And you know, sometimes just you just. Uh, 
you know, you just feel like you know, sitting back, letting your friends do all the work. Chug along, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Uh, speaking of let your friends do all the work, do you guys want to um, just want to thank everybody for, for putting in the effort to give us some reviews and, and good yeah. words yeah. on iTunes right now? We got a couple of good reviews. We got in. some really nice reviews, and it means a lot. And if you feel like it, shoot us an email at one out of four experts at gmail.com. We'd love to be your friend, you know? Yeah, we're, uh, we do things on the weekends sometimes. Um, well, I don't know that we want to like hang out with no, these people no, that we've never met. I don't. But, yeah. you know, we could communicate Feel and free to it communicate was just so nice and and thank you for for whoever is doing this yeah thanks i'll hang out caitlin doesn't want to but i mean yeah, like just on. you know give me a call yeah also yeah please keep doing that follow us on social media like i like to say uh like droopy likes to to help us out with instagram and uh twitter and i mean well, well we need twitter followers but we also need to tweet stuff for yeah, that to we happen should so probably tweet we'll more. work on that um and uh, our Instagram's doing pretty, pretty good. I think we're doing all right, huh, guys? Yeah, it's we're yeah, doing it's the best bad. we can. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing pretty good. Okay, uh, um, I guess. So, who do we decide who's going first next week? Who won? Well, that would be me. It was Caitlin's. Caitlin, three you're, and doing, half. you're doing three and a half. Doing real She's good recently. It. Thanks. Winning a lot of episodes. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. So sometimes, we... sometimes you give me points for just like trying something new or like doing a fun <laughs> voice or doing a fun character or something. You taking performance enhancing drugs? <laughs> uh, well, it depends on what is. The, what are those for podcasts? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, what are the podcast performance enhancing drugs? Meth. Yeah. <laughs> I see you hunched over in the corner in the middle of segments. Yeah, then yeah. Yes. I wanted to address the fact that you're just covered in open sores. Yep. And most of your hair is falling out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we call her patches. Um, <laughs> what are we bringing next week, y'all? Um, I'm going to rate the flavor of all breeds of dogs. Um, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it in the subcategories that they do at the dog show. So like sporting. Oh, okay. um, all the different groups. All the other ones. Uh, that's the only one working, I know off the top. Working. Toy. Working class. Toy is the one that terrier, I Terrier. The terrier group. Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess that it's probably the beagle is the most delicious, but... Put a beagle on a bagel? Yeah, but we'll get, we'll, you know, we'll get into it next week. I don't want to give it all away. I'm going to talk about how to record directly to uh, hamburger meat. Record directly to beef. Um... And you get that real nice analog beef sound. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about the history of that. You know, if you if you buy a new pair of scissors and it's all like heat wrap, it's like very thick plastic that's like heat wrapped around the around the item, and it's just impossible to get open, and it and it cuts your hands every time. Oh, blister packs. Yeah. Is uh, yep. Oh, you're packs. thinking the clamshell. Clamshell packs. Okay. All right. Give clamshell. Josh and well, Joel we'll a point see. for I guess next we'll week. See. Oh, yeah. They get a pre-point for next week. <laughs> pre-point. <laughs> a pre-point. <laughs> I'll be talking about the uh, the brief history of trampoline baseball. Next week on One Out of Four Experts. One Out of Four Experts. One Out of Four Experts. 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 Uh. <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, experts.